we're at chapter 18, verse 18 or so. Paul now having done most of the ministry he intended to do in his second missionary journey, he's reached the farthest point from home, which is Corinth. Now he's turning back and heading back to Antioch, ending his second missionary journey. In a little while, we'll come to the beginning of his third journey, and that's where this map comes in. Now, Paul is coming back home, but he's not completely done with ministry. And along the way, he's going to make a stop in a couple of cities on the way back to Antioch. And these are cities that Paul himself did not found the church in, but is aware that there are churches here. So he's going to stop. And then we're also going to be introduced to a new character tonight in the story of the gospel spread, a man named Apollos. And there is a story, as I mentioned already, connected to him that has at times been a source of confusion within the church on a matter of doctrine. And we'll look at that tonight. So chapter 18, verse 18 is where we begin. We'll read a short distance and then go into the teaching. Read with me. Chapter 18, verse 18. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sincrea, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. So we see Paul now taking that turn to head home, going east again. If you look at the map that you have from journey two, Or you could also look at journey three here and get a sense of what's happening. He's in Corinth, but he's moving down to Sincrea. If you look on the map that I gave you for missionary journey three, they're both on the map. So you can see them there as well. Remember I told you that Corinth sat on an isthmus that was a thin strip of land and it had ports on either end, one in the Aegean Sea and one in the Adriatic. The one on the Aegean side is Sincrea. So he's moving from the city proper down into its uh, southern port. And he's doing this, of course, because that's where you catch boats if you're trying to get onto the water. And so he's gone down there to find a boat. He's taking with him both Priscilla and Aquila, who he met uh, in this city, Corinth. And now apparently they have decided they want to work with Paul. So he's brought them along. Luke doesn't mention anything, though, of Silas and Timothy. That doesn't mean they're not with him. We just don't hear anything of them. Now, when he gets to Sancria, we hear that he has shaved his head because he is keeping a vow. Now, under... Mosaic law, under the law that Jews followed. A man was required to refrain from cutting his hair whenever he took a vow to God. There was a couple of different ways this could be done. The the one you probably are most familiar with is the Nazarene vow that involved not cutting hair. The vow could have one of two meanings. It was purposed in one of two ways. It could either be a vow of thanksgiving for something God has done or given you. And so in a show of thanksgiving publicly, you, you take on this vow that for a period of time you, you will not cut your hair while you continually give thanks to God. Or the vow could be a petition to God for something that you wanted to happen. And you again would take a vow for a period of time in consecrating yourself to the Lord in the hope that he would answer your petition and you would not cut your hair during this period of time. These are two ways in which you could take a vow under the law. At the end of the vow, however long you vowed, to remain in this state. Once that was concluded, the person would then cut their hair and the law required that they take the hair that's been cut to the temple in Jerusalem and burn it on the altar as an offering to God. So that's how you concluded the vow under the law. 
There are then two explanations for what Paul may be doing here in the text. Either he just finished a period in which he had taken a vow, and now he has shaved his head as required, now that the period of the vow has ended, and he's preparing to get on a ship that will take him to Jerusalem where he will burn the hair as required. Now, you might imagine if this was the case, that his vow had something to do with a request concerning the missionary journey he's just completed. That if, in other words, this is the end of the vow, then he took the vow at some earlier point, And knowing what he's just done in his second missionary journey, we put two and two together and we can surmise that perhaps he had taken a vow at the onset of this second journey and the vow had something to do with a request or a petition. Perhaps it was for great harvest in this time in which he would be ministering to the Gentiles and so on. Maybe it was for protection, but he took a vow and now it's complete and he's departing with his hair having been clipped. That's one possibility for what Paul is doing here. The other one takes the same basic situation and puts you at the other end of the timeline. It could be here that Paul is now making the vow. This is the start of the vow, in other words, not the completion of it. If that's true, then the cutting of the hair here represents what was commonly done before you entered into a vow. You cut your hair down low on the onset of the vow because it could be a year or two in which you would go without cutting your hair. So you started with the hair as short as you could get it, giving time now for the hair to grow out. So this could have been the very beginning in which he's cut his hair just prep in preparation for a vow. If that were the case here, then you might assume he's about to enter into a vow of thanksgiving for what God has given him in his period of ministry. Different men have different takes on the text based on these two possibilities. Some argue out of the language in Greek, the, the tense of the verbs and the like, that it's more likely the former is taking place here, that he is finishing a vow and cutting his hair in preparation to go to Jerusalem. More interesting than that question is just the very fact that you see Paul, a man who in multiple places in the New Testament preaches on the liberty we have in Christ and on the fact that the law itself is no longer in effect for Christians. The very fact that he is following the law in this regard causes some to wonder, isn't this something we're not supposed to do anymore? Well, in in thinking that, if you were prone to thinking that, you forget that liberty works both ways. Liberty is the freedom both to ignore the law or to follow the law and to do so selectively. Remember that when we were under law, if we were a Jew living in the time prior to Christ, we had no choice and we could not be selective. We were to keep the whole law. Now, as a Christian in the time of grace, we have the liberty to follow what of the law we wish or none of it. And in this case, Paul, a Jew trained under the law, a man who lived in that culture, he clearly had an affinity for certain aspects of what he had come to know growing up and had lived in up to up to this point in his life. So he still followed them. Uh, Many Christians are doing this unbeknownst to themselves. Christians who have a very dedicated practice in keeping a Sabbath once a week are doing exactly the same thing Paul is doing here. They have chosen to retain or maintain a requirement which is technically no longer a requirement for Christians. The keeping of the Sabbath is no longer a requirement. So as such, they are practicing very much the same thing, and they are just as right to do so if they wish. We are able to do as God leads and to take liberty in all those things as God provides. So this is Paul taking liberty to actually apply the law. In terms of his travels, he's left Corinth. He's now arriving first in Ephesus. Ephesus was called the gateway to the east. Where Ephesus lay in Asia Minor, it was the farthest west city in the 
region of the world considered the east. So for people traveling from the west, which would have been Rome or Greece, headed to the east, the first major port you'd come to was Ephesus. And so it was considered the gateway to the east. In Paul's day, it was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire and in the world. Upwards of half a million people lived in Ephesus. It's a close second right behind Corinth for the award of most corrupt city, morally corrupt. They had the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We don't have it today, of course. They, they all cease to exist except for the pyramids. But the stories in literature about it tell us that it was roughly four times the size of the Parthenon ruins that are currently still in Athens. So if you've seen that building in person, think of a building four times larger. Uh, it had over 200 columns circling the building, each of which were six feet wide and 70 feet tall. And it was, uh, that's why we call it one of the wonders of the world, an amazing structure. It was the center of pagan worship in the ancient world. And that included, uh, obviously, sacrifices and thousands of temple prostitutes. And it was a bank as well. A lot of money and treasure was stored in this place. I don't think commerce has ever fully disassociated itself with prostitution, by the way, in the way that this one established. And it was also the center for sorcery and black arts. So the city was a dark city on that, from that point of view. After arriving in Ephesus, Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila to minister to this city, which had a small population of Christians already. While Paul is there, he's waiting for the next ship to dock. This is the ancient equivalent of what we see today when we fly. You take a plane to get to somewhere so you can get another plane to somewhere else. And he's taken a ship from the port in Corinth to Ephesus while he waits for the next ship that's taken him to where he really wants to go, which is Jerusalem. This is his layover. And the layovers in those days weren't hours, they were weeks. So while he's laying over for this ship, he does what he always does. He goes into the synagogue looking for Jews who he can minister to while he's there. And he visits there reasoning with the Jews like we've seen him do before. Once again, when the text says he is reasoning with the Jews, we know that means he goes to the Old Testament, looks at scripture that relates to the Messiah, explains Jesus to these Jews in light of what is found in the Old Testament. There's a principle here that we've seen now several times, and you see the two halves, the two sides for how the gospel can be presented generally. To those who have been taught to expect a Messiah, they are to be shown proof that Jesus fulfilled those prophecies and that his death and resurrection were part of that plan. You're bringing them to a completion of what they've been anticipating. That's why we talk about a Jew who believes as a completed Jew. To those who don't even know what a Messiah is, much less have any anticipation of it, the story becomes one of how God made a payment available for sin by sacrificing himself on their behalf. That's a more fundamental level of teaching that the Jew wouldn't necessarily need. They need to see how Jesus completes the picture. Both are equally legitimate. Both, by the way, come to the same conclusion that he died and resurrected. And that was proof of his claims to be who he said he was. And that's where the gospel ultimately leads for both groups. Now, in this moment, Paul, from what we hear in the text, apparently makes no converts in that Jewish synagogue, though it it seems he might have been close. There are some early signs of faith, perhaps. And in the way Luke puts it, they have asked him to stay longer, implying they're interested but he hasn't closed the deal yet. Paul, though, says, no, I'm not going to stay longer. He doesn't consent. And he is evidently feeling pressured to return to Jerusalem while he still has the chance. Some have guessed that perhaps it was approaching for the time of the Passover. 
Paul wanting to be in Jerusalem for Passover is on a timetable to get home by a certain time in the year. There are, I think, one or more manuscripts that have that in them, but they're not considered authoritative in that respect. So it could be true. It's just not one we rest on. In any case, he offers to return if the Lord wills. And we find later in his third trip that he does go to Ephesus, which we'll look at later tonight. Finally, Paul lands at home. Verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Now, experienced Bible students should have immediately recognized a couple of up and down references there and should have been able to tell what that meant. Paul's journey here ends first on sea with Caesarea. Now, the Caesarea is about 50 miles northwest of Jerusalem as the crow flies. In the up and down reference, those of you who know what I'm referring to, when you hear of travel up, you're referring to what? Always to Jerusalem. Jews always view the world from a high point in Jerusalem. So if you're traveling up, you're going to Jerusalem. If you're traveling away from Jerusalem, you're going down. doesn't matter if you're climbing a mountain or not. You're going down. So the reference here to going up, greeting the church, and then going down to Antioch, without mentioning the city's name, we know where he went. He went from Caesarea to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Antioch. This is Paul's final stop in Antioch in his life. He never again finds himself in this town, in his home. And the very next verse, verse 23 shows Paul's third missionary journey beginning in a very casual statement mid-chapter. Verse 23, And having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phygia, strengthening all the disciples. You almost miss it, don't you? <laughs> if you're traveling through the text too quickly, you, you don't catch the fact that Paul now has just begun his next journey. Prior to this, Paul spends about six to eight, somewhere between six and eight months in Antioch before he finally starts out again in summer of A.D. 53. So that's where we are now. One thing to keep in mind, his successive missionary journeys after the first one become more and more about strengthening the disciples, less and less about establishing churches. Because the nature of the missionary journey is such that he keeps going back in many cases to places he's already been. So he's strengthening in these later stages of ministry. When Luke says in verse 23, Paul passed through these two regions on the way, in one simple little statement there, he summarizes about 1,500 miles of Paul's travels in that third journey. If you have the map I just handed out or if you have it from previous classes, that takes you from Antioch, where you see the mission trip beginning again, all the way up to the city of Ephesus. Luke makes no mention of anything happening in those areas. And because of that, and based on the fact that he heads to Ephesus, it's likely that Paul took a road that was not the common Roman road of the day, the most common road. Another way of saying it is he took the byways, not the interstate. The main Roman road would have gone further south and would have gone through some of the places he traveled in during his previous journeys, places like Lystra, for example, and further south through Pamphylia. The fact that he doesn't take that route or hit any of those towns, at least as far as we can tell, suggests that his purpose initially was to get back to Ephesus as fast as he could. In keeping his promise to that town, he makes them his first priority as he leaves. There's no indication he stops. There's no indication he plants churches. No indication he even bothers to visit churches he's already planted. He seems anxious to get to the outer limits of his previous trip and start again from there, rather than covering too much worn ground. Verse 24. Now we get into the issue of Apollos which will be a key part of tonight. Verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. 
And being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. When he had wanted to go across to Acacia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Apollos, we are hearing, is a Jew. He's from Alexandria, Egypt, one of the most storied ancient cities in the world. Uh, The city was renowned for its universities. It was a college town. And, of course, the world-famous library that was later destroyed by fire. Alexander the Great founded it in 332 B.C. That's where it gets its name, of course. And he brought with him, as he established that town, a fairly large Jewish contingent. Jews that had been made slaves were forced to be moved into this town and help establish it for the sake of what Alexander was trying to do. Eventually, the Jews in that city grew in terms of their population to a point where they consisted of about a third of all of the city's population. One of the reasons why I personally think Alexandria had such a reputation in its day as a cultural center in the world was because of the large Jewish influence in that city and the blessing that comes to those people by God's word. The Jews that lived in that city contributed to the city's reputation. They, For example, the Greek language Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint, was translated here in this city by the 70 elders of Israel. The famous Jewish philosopher Philo lived in Alexandria. And we're told Apollos trained there. And if he trained there, then he would have trained in the finest traditions steeped in the Old Testament. In fact, it's possible he may have bested Paul in terms of human accomplishment. He may have known more about the Bible than Paul. He may have been a a more studied individual even than Paul in that regard. The text says he was also eloquent and mighty in the Scriptures. Now, we know Paul was mighty in the Scriptures, but we also know that by Paul's own testimony, he was not eloquent. So at very least, Apollos had the makings here of a very powerful servant, useful in the spread of the gospel. On top of it all, he's a self-starter. He's the kind of guy that sees a problem and decides he can be the solution. Because he's out preaching with an incomplete understanding, trying to persuade people about the gospel, at least in some limited sense. He's zealous, but without a full understanding. In fact, when Luke says that he is a man who is fervent, In the spirit, the word fervent in Greek, zeo, z-e-o, it's actually the root of another Greek word from which we get zealous. In Greek, zeo literally means to boil, as in to boil water. So he's a man with a boiling spirit, very zealous for God and for the truth. We know uh, Paulus has come into Ephesus now. The fact that he's traveled from Alexandria to Ephesus may have been in a mission context. He sees himself as a man who could come and help that city in its pagan ways. Luke says that Apollos was teaching in that city accurately the things concerning Jesus. Now, to understand what Luke means, we need to look a little further in the passage. First, notice this. Look at the end of verse 25. Luke says Apollos was only acquainted with the baptism of John the Baptist. Luke implies that Apollos isn't acquainted with the baptism of those who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. That's clear enough, isn't it? When you say that someone's only acquainted with the baptism of John, you're indicating they're not acquainted with the more important baptism that accompanies faith in Christ. So the man did not understand 
the idea of baptizing someone in the name of Christ. Secondly, Luke says in verse 26 that Priscilla and Aquila had to explain to Apollos the way of God more accurately, more accurately. So clearly, there is something in Apollos' preaching concerning Jesus which was inaccurate or at the very least incomplete. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had to take him aside. All right, so you put these two things together and then come back to verse 25 and consider what Apollos was probably preaching. Here's where you come. Luke says Apollos was teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, which must mean, in light of these things he didn't know, that he was teaching about the Messiah accurately, but in a limited way. In the way John the Baptist was preaching the same thing. So he wasn't preaching Jesus by name, more than likely, though Luke mentions Jesus because Jesus is the Messiah to his audience, to the ones reading Luke's account. We know Jesus is the Messiah. But in saying that Apollos was teaching the way of Jesus accurately, he was teaching the way of Messiah accurately without it requiring that he knew Jesus was the Messiah. That would also be consistent with the fact that he does not know of the baptism associated with Jesus, only the one that John gave. John the Baptist taught a baptism of repentance, and he pointed those who accepted his baptism to the coming Messiah with the instruction that I must diminish so that he would increase. And when the Messiah arrived, then John took his disciples and pointed them to Christ and released them from his own ministry. So John's understanding was someone's coming. I'm a forerunner of that person. And when I know who they are, I'll tell you and you follow them. But until I know who they are, we're all waiting together. It would seem as Apollos here, understanding the message of repentance, he may be, and many commentators believe that he himself may have received the baptism of John, which is why he would know about it. And now he has carried that message outward from Jerusalem and now is teaching it in the diaspora. If that's true, then we would also assume he left John the Baptist's ministry before Jesus arrived on the scene. So he had the first half of the story, but he wasn't present when the second half showed up. So Apollos leaves with the message of a baptism of repentance, a message that included an awareness that the Christ was coming and was soon to arrive. And he's been repeating that message everywhere he goes, teaching accurately concerning the prophecies of the Messiah and what he would be like and what we should be looking for in his life and of why it needed to be there. But he didn't understand the second half of the gospel. He didn't understand the good news of Jesus's death and resurrection. That part of it is apparently missing in his understanding. You'll see further proof of this when we go a little further into the text. When Priscilla and Aquila hear Apollos, they do what anyone would do. This is equivalent to what Paul's been doing when he reasons with the Jews in the synagogue. When they heard that he had an interest in the, in the Messiah and, were, and was preaching correctly out of the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, they took him aside and finished the picture for him and gave him the peace he didn't have. They inform him probably that the Messiah has in fact arrived. He was Jesus. He died. He was resurrected in fulfillment of all these prophecies. And now, armed with that good news, Apollos is ready to preach the full gospel. And at that point, we hear he feels a call to go to Acacia. Remember, Acacia is the province that includes Corinth. He feels called now to go to Corinth. Luke says 
He's encouraged to go by those who, who know him in Ephesus. And when he arrives and begins to preach in Corinth, he is a great encouragement to that church. I mean, think about it. This is a church we know just from the letters that are written to Corinth that suffered a lot from the standpoint of a poor understanding of what it meant to be a Christian without a background in Judaism. Here comes a man who has that complete knowledge and an eloquence to deliver it. So Apollos is a man who can powerfully refute the Jews in Corinth, preach the full gospel, preaching Jesus the Christ. Notice how Luke makes that distinction. Where a minute earlier he is said to be teaching accurately the way of Jesus, now he's said to be preaching Jesus as the Christ. That's the distinction that he now understands. Now you might remember Paul's first letter to Corinth when he mentions Apollos by name in a famous part of the first chapter. Apollos apparently, when he arrived in Corinth, was so powerful as a teacher that some in the Corinthian church had taken sides by identifying themselves as his students in contrast to those who had previously identified themselves as Paul's students, Paul having been there earlier. So as Paul leaves, everyone remembers Paul started this. We all love Paul. Apollo showed up and the guy must have been incredible. Being the second guy on the scene, you've always got a harder job than the first guy. And yet he's so good at what he does. And of course, neither Paul nor Apollos had this intent or goal. But nevertheless, the Corinthian church latches on to this guy thinking he's so good at what he does. I want to be his disciple. Forget Paul. And that, of course, resulted in another group saying, you can't do that. Paul's our guy. So then you got the camps. Paul writes his letter saying, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you or, you know, you'd even be worse. I only, well, I baptized two of you, but I'm glad I didn't baptize the rest of you because you guys think you're disciples of us. He says, we're nothing. I plant, someone else waters, but God's the one who causes the growth. He makes the point that we are just vessels. We're not in competition. We're not seeking men to ourselves. We're not looking for disciples. Boy, I tell you, there's, you can't hear this again if you go through 1 Corinthians and be a teacher or anyone in ministry at any level in ministry and not feel a twinge of conviction to make sure that you're never collecting disciples or in any sense encouraging a, a kind of followership that is, that is in competition for Christ himself to be that, that leader. There's certainly going to be affiliations and affinities and friendships. That's natural. But it should never go to the point where the church in Corinth did where there's something about the person's individual force of character, of knowledge, of personality, charisma, and so on, that overshadows the point of being Christ's to the extent that we actually identify ourselves more by that individual. And you see that in the church today in, in some cases. People who are quick to point out who they are a student of, whether as a pastor or somebody to listen to on the radio or whatever. And you'll know if it's reached a point in which it's a problem when everything they see, hear, or do, or think is referenced against what that one person says. I can't know if that's right or not. I've got to check in with that guy to find out if he agrees with what you're saying. Well, that may be healthy in some cases, but in many other cases it's a sign that you've become too enamored with that person, forgetting that we're all students of the same spirit and we all have a limited understanding. We have to work together to get the fullness. Nevertheless, going back to the text, Apollos now has made a big impact in Corinth. Now, we go immediately into the next chapter. The story doesn't stop at the end of chapter 18. The next part of the story begins in chapter 19. And with this next phase of the story in chapter 19 comes an opportunity for an error in interpretation concerning some doctrinal issues here. And we'll see that here in a minute. Let's go to the text first. Verse 1 of chapter 19. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
And they said to him, no, we've not even never heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. They were in all about 12 men. Now, let's set the scene here as you leave 18 and come into 19. Apollos is gone. He's left Ephesus. He's over here in Corinth gaining groupies unwittingly. Now you have Paul coming in after him into the city of Ephesus. And you notice it says that Paul comes in passing through the upper country. That's the way we know in which he took that other road. The upper country is a reference here to coming through the northern part of Asia Minor, which would have not been the traditional route, but would have been a more direct route to Ephesus. As he arrives in Ephesus... He finds some disciples. Now, perhaps he's a bit surprised to find disciples because if you remember, the last time Paul was in this city, he had found little or no fruit in anything he had done. There's no evidence that there was a turn from those in the Jewish synagogue. And if we remember Paul's pattern, he was to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. So the fact that he spent all his time in the synagogue in his last trip to Ephesus, it implies that there was no Gentile church there yet, but he was starting it. And he always started with the Jew. And because he had no converts out of the Jews, he didn't move on to the Gentiles. So as he shows up and he finds converts, disciples, he's a bit surprised. Who would have planted this church? Where did you come from, in other words? And as he becomes familiar with them, he gets to the point, we don't know how he comes to this question, but somewhere along the way, he begins to wonder about what they've truly accepted, what they're disciples of. And so he asks the question. He says, Did you get the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? Now, at this point, we have to remember something Paul himself teaches in several places, but including Romans. He writes in Romans 8, 14, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Paul gives us essentially the biblical definition of who is a Christian. Anyone who has the indwelling, and that's what he means by the leading of those who are being led by or those who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Those are the sons of God. By definition, those are the believers. So when Paul looks at this group and says, do you have the Holy Spirit? In a diplomatic way, he's saying, are you believers in the real thing? Are you truly Christians? And of course, the easiest way for him in his day to make that point is to find out, did the Holy Spirit arrive and have you seen any evidence of the Holy Spirit? Because to be saved is to have received it. To this question, they answer by saying, we don't even know what that is. We've never even heard of such a thing. If he's talking to Jews, and that's the likely group here, it would have been natural for them to say this. In fact, today you would expect a non-believing Jew to answer exactly the same way. In their understanding of their Old Testament, they do not see a trinity. They do not even see a duality. They do not see a Holy Spirit separate from the Father. Jews are monotheistic as we are, but they're monotheistic to a fault. They do not, in their own understanding, appreciate God's multifaceted nature or personage. So for them, there's only Jehovah, as he has expressed himself, without also understanding the angel of the Lord or the spirit of the Lord as separate personages in the Godhead. And so to Paul, when he says, have you had the Holy Spirit? It's a new thing to them. They haven't heard of such a thing before. The question at this point for some is, how could... This group be unbelievers because, number one, the scripture says 
they heard the powerful teaching of Apollos. Secondly, in verse 1, they're called disciples. Third, Paul refers to them as believing in verse 2. Verse 2, Paul says, how did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? These references give some reason to say, well, clearly these are believers. So when they come to that conclusion, it brings another question to mind. How is it they don't have the Holy Spirit if they're believers? Where they go in answering that question is they say, ah, they must have had the Holy Spirit in the simple sense. In other words, the, the way you get the Holy Spirit when you come to faith. But apparently there is some second experience, a subsequent kind of experience, another way the Holy Spirit can arrive that's that's fuller and more pronounced than just the simple way of coming to faith. And when Paul laid on hands and they received the baptism of Christ, they got this fuller reception or fuller experience with the Holy Spirit, and it resulted in prophesying and speaking in tongues and so on. So out of that chain of thought comes a doctrine, a false doctrine, that argues that Christians should expect and seek after this secondary experience. Because for them, this is the proof that it can happen. Here is a a group of believers who had a secondary filling of the Holy Spirit in response to something that the Apostle Paul does. Now, this this is particularly common among Pentecostal charismatic traditions, although I don't know if it's limited to that group, but it's certainly characteristic of those viewpoints. The real shame of it, where I've seen it do damage, is when it becomes the ultimate litmus test for true faith. That for some traditions, they're so focused on this mistaught part of Scripture that they see it as an essential requirement for salvation. And if somebody has not made it to this stage in some respect, they are suspect. And so you go to the extremes. You go to the end result of all of this was speaking in tongues. So if you can't speak in tongues, you didn't have the filling. If you don't have the filling, you're not truly saved and so on. And it's a, it's a very dangerous kind of, of heresy. Let's actually look at what's going on here and make sense of it. First, I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 3. And we've alluded to some of this. Having heard that they know nothing of the Holy Spirit, Paul asks them the next obvious question. What kind of baptism did you receive? Remember, I can take any one of you right now and with your agreement, I guess, dunk you underwater. And some of you I could probably take without your agreement. (laughs) I have done nothing spiritual in that process. The the mere act of dunking someone underwater is just what it is, putting someone into water, and they come out of it with nothing more than being wet. Right. It's an an external ritualistic act that has no automatic spiritual significance. The physical acts we do can be representative of, of some greater spiritual meaning, but they cannot accomplish the same. So by the physical, I can represent, but I cannot achieve the same. And therefore, I can mimic the spiritual without it actually being there in some cases when I do the physical. If I have believed and been baptized by the Holy Spirit in my faith, I can then go in the water and mimic that and picture that by water. But I can also go into the water without the former spiritual truth being there. And I cannot, by going in the water, create the spiritual. It doesn't work backwards, in other words. So Paul knows they've done basically that thing. They have gone into the water and come out mimicking something under the guise of some purpose, but it didn't achieve the end it was intended to picture. It never actually brought the Holy Spirit to them because it didn't involve a true faith or confession in Christ. And so then he says, well, what made you get in the water to begin with? What was your motivation to get wet if now I know it wasn't for the right reason? 
what reason did you have for getting wet? And their answer was that they received this baptism of John. And we said already that John's baptism was one that was a call to repentance in anticipation of the Messiah's arrival. So what you meant to say, what you were trying to evoke or picture when you went into the water in John's day, getting the baptism of John was a confession of need, a confession of need. I am acknowledging I am in need of the cleansing of a Messiah. I am a sinner and I repent with the hope and anticipation that God will cleanse me of this through the Messiah. So I am not achieving my cleansing. I am picturing my need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. So it's a call to repentance in anticipation. This is not a unique hope to John's day or a unique call to John's day. John was the voice in the wilderness that brought the call back to life after 400 years of silence from the prophets. But he was not the originator of that call. Far from it. Men from the time of Abel have been called to repent and bring a sacrifice or repent and show faith for God to atone. He was the reemergence of it in a land that was dead to the message for 400 years. We also remember that these Christians in Ephesus were instructed by a man, Apollos, who himself was incomplete in his understanding of the gospel. Only later does he come to know the gospel as a story of Christ. And so what they received from Apollos was incomplete. And so it had left them where John the Baptist left his disciples waiting and hoping in anticipation. They just don't understand the full picture yet. Now, secondly, verse four, Paul gives the full description of the gospel. In particular, Paul explains that John's baptism was a call for them to believe in the one who would follow John. And then he identifies who that one is, Jesus. Friends, you don't give this message to believers. The clearest proof you need in this passage for who these people were prior to Paul's arrival is found in the way Paul himself chose to preach to these people. He chose to preach the gospel, which is clear evidence that he knew they needed it. And once they learned Jesus was the one, what do they do? Their response is to get baptized again. How many times do you need to be baptized? Once. Why are they getting a second dunking? It's proof in itself that the first one was not a valid dunking. We're not saying that the baptism by water is an essential requirement of salvation. The true baptism that saves you is the one of the Spirit. The one we do in water pictures that greater one. But in its meaning, in its reason for having been given, its purpose is an evidence of the faith that saves. So the very fact that they needed to get baptized a second time, which Paul makes obviously makes clear they needed it. That's why he did it. It proves that the earlier one was not an act that followed faith. Because if it had been an act in following faith, it would have been sufficient. The fact that it needed to happen again means that the first act was not following faith. If Paul had really believed they knew the gospel, he never would have proposed a second water baptism for them. Uh, what would be the modern equivalent for us? Infant baptism. From the point of view of an infant today, it's almost exactly the same thing. There are people who've been baptized as infants who now as adults don't know anything about the Holy Spirit, have no faith in the Messiah, and that earlier experience counts for nothing. It's just an act someone did to them. So they go into the water a second time. When Paul baptized them, in what fashion would he have performed the baptism? Besides dunking, what else would he have done according to Scripture? He would have baptized them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They didn't even know there was such a thing as a Holy Spirit, much less that Jesus was the Messiah, which would mean that whatever they had going on in that first baptism would not have included those words. 
It would not have been a baptism done by how Scripture expects it to be done for the believer. Up to this point, we've only seen three times when speaking in tongues or, or another kind of outward manifestation of, of the Spirit accompanied faith. And you remember them with me, right? The first time the gospel is preached to the Jews, Pentecost. The second time is when it's preached to the Samaritans. The third time it's when it's reaching the Gentiles. In each of these cases, it's the first time the gospel reaches each of these respective divisions of humanity. With each of them, you're reaching a new group. Once the third has been reached, the Gentiles, you've captured all of humanity. All of humanity has been represented with one of those three groups. So we're not seeing now a new group being reached in this case. Instead, we're seeing the Holy Spirit being displayed as a way of distinguishing the baptism of John from the one associated with the full gospel message. Let me say it a different way. Would you have expected the Holy Spirit to appear in their lives following the baptism of John? Clearly not. But they've heard a very powerful man in the form of Apollos preaching something that they believed. Now you have another man who, by testimony of Scripture, is less eloquent, showing up saying, what you have is not enough. You need something more. How many men have come and gone in the history of the church with a false gospel that began with exactly those same words? You've heard something, but you haven't heard the whole story. There's some other piece you need. There's a guy named Joseph Smith you haven't heard about. There's Charles Russell, the Jehovah's Witness guy. There's something you haven't heard. This tendency for the false gospels of history to build on top of the true gospel, but in the building process, they negate the true gospel. It's a dangerous precedent. So if this is one of the few cases in which a, a beginning of God's work is seen, but yet not the fullness of it, how is it that God is going to validate Paul's message so that there isn't a pattern set here erroneously, which is we can believe something and expect something better to show up later? This is a unique circumstance that warranted this kind of demonstrative display, especially in light of the fact that this is the founding years of the church, the early stage of the church, when precedents are being set all over the place for how ministry is done and how the church will grow. Under those delicate circumstances, God elects to bring a unique kind of experience again to this group so that they had internal, immediate confirmation, internal to themselves, confirmation that what Paul is is saying they needed to understand was in fact the truth in relationship, in comparison to what they had received from Apollos. This is the fourth and only time, the last time we see speaking in tongues or prophesying in the book of Acts. And you can accept it from the general pattern on the basis of the moment, of the circumstances of this moment, and of the importance of distinguishing Paul's message from Apollos's. It's clear at this point in chapter 19 that even after it had reached Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles, God was still willing to show himself through speaking in tongues and these other signs. So we cannot say that such outward signs of the Spirit will never happen again. We therefore leave room in our theology for God to be God, which means he can produce whatever sign through whomever he wishes, whenever he wants to, and there's no reason to constrain his ability to do so if his own word does not. And it doesn't. Nevertheless, Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians that speaking in tongues is a gift that may be used on occasion, but within very specific parameters that Paul outlines. And if you look at those parameters, they limit its use in such a way that we would expect to rarely see it in the church today, based on what Paul says must be in place. But nevertheless, we must acknowledge the possibility 
under those prescribed circumstances. So our doctrine is not an all or nothing doctrine if Scripture itself doesn't provide it as such. One of those parameters is we're not talking about gobbledygook. It is a true, knowable human language. It's just not one you know. What do we take from this moment in, in a doctrinal sense? What do we understand about this moment? God's purpose in showing the Holy Spirit to these people and to us today in ways like this are always for the same purpose. And I find this to be a helpful test when we may encounter a moment of the Holy Spirit being demonstrative through someone or we wonder if we really are or are not, if we suspect maybe it's not true. How do I test that in the moment? Well, the Spirit will always be demonstrative to the same end, according to Scripture, and that end is to glorify Christ. That's the end result, the end purpose of the Spirit's ministry, to draw men to Christ to glorify the gospel. Notice here that the effect of these displays in Acts 19 was to confirm the truth of the gospel itself, to give validity, to give attention to the right gospel, which would have been in contrast to Apollos' earlier incomplete and invalid gospel. That it was useful for the Spirit to be demonstrative because it confirmed to the audience that Paul was preaching the true gospel. Through this display, the Holy Spirit is directing men to worship Christ correctly. That's the end result of the display. That is always the role of the Holy Spirit in God's creation. He never works in such a way that he draws attention to himself. So that the end result of the display is everyone talking about the Holy Spirit. Or wishing they had the Holy Spirit more. Or admiring someone who has the Holy Spirit. Or impressed by the display of the Holy Spirit. If that's the end result, if the end leads us to that kind of a thought or, or heart, rather than drawing our attention to Christ and the gospel, it is the surest proof I can offer that you have seen something that did not actually include the work of the Holy Spirit himself. Because the true Holy Spirit would never operate in such a way. We must have seen a man-made, falsified version of the same because any other display that was truly originated with the Holy Spirit would never have directed us to think about him. What was the effect in the moment? It caused people to think about the gospel and about Christ. When we insist that these displays be common for all believers, we ignore Scripture's teaching that they are intentionally uncommon so that they can be purposeful. The whole reason it was meaningful that you only saw it happen in three or four times in the time of Acts was because in those infrequent, specialized moments, the full impact was possible. If it was happening every day around every corner, it would have had no meaning apart from just the generic Christian experience. It was the uniqueness that made them useful to God. And then by making these displays commonplace in the church today, when we see that taking place, we are changing their purpose from glorifying Christ to something lesser and unfortunately usually to glorifying ourselves to some kind of man-made glory. Because we know that's not the Holy Spirit's purpose, we know he's not participating if we see that. So, Heavenly Father, thank you as always, Father, to equip us so well and by your word to explain so clearly what it is you do in the lives of men, how we can communicate that to others. Father, we uh, thank you for Apollos, though he was never in our lives directly. We know, Father, he did much to spread your church and bring it to where it is today, along with Paul. And we ask that we might be a model of that man in so many ways, his eloquence and his knowledge of Scripture, but also, Father, his energy and his zealousness and his humility in the very fact, Father, that he could be taught the truth and accept it with glee and move forward in a new way. 
Let us be all of those things. And Father, I pray you bring us back next week to help us in achieving that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.